All right, I'd like to invite you this morning to turn to Exodus chapter 19. You're reading verses 18 through 20. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And I'd also like you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9, we're reading verses 9 and 10. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. The Lord gave me two tablets of stone written by the finger of God, And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to worship you on this Lord's day. We give you thanks that you have given us your law and ask that you might open our eyes that we would see wondrous things from it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our, our focus this week is going to uh, change a little bit. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a departure from what we've been doing. We've been going through the, when I've been afforded the opportunity to preach anyway, going through the first chapter of John and uh, looking at, at least attempting to look at what John tells us about the person and being of Christ and I debated continuing going through John because it, it, it's a wonderful book, but I, I have a little bit of free reign here, and I, I decided to, uh, at least for the time being, to change it up. So as we were going through John, we were looking at, um, at several themes as, as we went through it uh, throughout the introduction, ending last week with the implications that the first chapter of John has on evangelism and the the means in which God uses to save people. Our our theme today piggybacks on that, but in a a very different way. Today, we're going to shift our focus from the gospel to the law. And if we're being fair, I I don't think that you can fully understand the gospel without understanding the law. So it might be better to say that we're, we're shifting our focus to the law, that we might better understand the gospel. Uh, J. Gretchen Machen has a famous quote that sums up that idea. In his book, What is Faith? He wrote, A new and more powerful proclamation of the law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they'd only learned the lesson of the law. So it always is. A low view of the law always brings legalism and religion. A high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace. Pray God that the high view may again prevail. 
And this is our goal for today as we take this brief look at the law. It's that by understanding God's law just a little better, we might seek after his grace just a little more. Now, even though this is a a topical message on the law, we started by reading Exodus and Deuteronomy because I wanted our our message to be anchored in the text of Scripture. And we were looking at the, in, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, the giving of the law. And both of these events describe the, well, they describe the events leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments. And what we're going to be focusing on today specifically is, is the validity, the continued validity of God's law, um, or what some have coined the perpetual obligation to God's law. So I've, just for kind of ease of following, I have kind of three categories that we're going to look at. The first is we're going to start by just looking at a basic understanding of God's law. And then we're going to look at how the implications that God's law has on man in general, and then specifically the implications of God's law on the Christian. So with that in mind, if we look at the, trying to understand God's law, the, the term law is a broad category uh, within the Bible. Sometimes it's, it's used in a really broad sense uh, and refers to just general parts of the Bible. We see this kind of use in the Gospel of Luke 24, 44. This is after Jesus' resurrection, but before his ascension. He has this famous encounter on the Emmaus Road with, uh, with a couple of his apostles. And shortly after, after that, he appears to a larger group. And he says in verse 44, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So here Jesus is referring to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Bible, but he, he calls it the law of Moses. And, and the same broad use is implied in, in John, employed in John 10, 34, when Jesus is answering the Jews that had gathered around him. And he says, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. Jesus is making reference to Psalm 82, verse 6. Uh, when answering these Jews, and yet he, he's telling them, this is your law. But so for our discussion today, we're not going to be looking at a broad use of the law, but we're going to look at a more narrow use. John Cahoon said it this way, in, in its restricted or limited sense, the term law is employed to express the rule which God has prescribed to his rational creatures in order to direct and oblige them to the right performance of all their duties to him. In other words, It is used to signify the declared will of God, directing and obliging mankind to do that which pleases him and to abstain from that which displeases him. So in its its narrow sense, we're going to be looking at the declared will of God. And to, to help us in that pursuit, I think we need to start by defining some categories. Primarily, the, the distinction that needs to be made is what's commonly referred to as the threefold view of the, God, of the law or sometimes the trifold view. And, and the threefold division of the law uh, di, um, distinguishes three categories of the law. Uh, typically, they're called the moral, the ceremonial, and the judicial uh, law. Now, it's true that these divisions are not used by name in the Bible, but I think that we can make a biblical argument for uh, why these divisions do exist. Outside of the Bible, they've been uh, used throughout church history. 
John Calvin said that the threefold division was a well-known doctrine and that it's been adopted by the, quote, ancients. Many critics of the threefold uh, division claimed that it was a creation of Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. And while the threefold division did exist in Aquinas' writings, uh, it, you can trace divisions in the law all the way back to the early church fathers. But we don't accept it because it's a historical teaching of the church, but rather we accept it because it's developed biblically. And, and that's why the Westminster divines freely accepted it. And even our own London Baptist Confession uses this threefold division. But these kind of categories are found in their, throughout the Bible and they're necessary categories if we're to understand our Bible properly. For instance, if we think about Romans 2, 25 through 26, it says, For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor, transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, without biblical distinctions in the law, this saying really makes no sense. Because Jews had a legal requirement to be circumcised. And yet Paul is asserting that by keeping the law, one can be regarded as circumcised. Well, the, the distinction here is that Paul is talking about God's moral law, not the positive law of being, circumc being circumcised that we find in the Old Covenant. But without a proper understanding of the divisions of God's law, confusion can be sown into these verses. So my, my goal for today is not necessarily to make a defense for the threefold division, but rather to make use of it, because I think it's a useful tool in helping us to understand God's law in a greater sense. So with that in mind, we can start by looking at God's moral law. God's moral law has historically been, been summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's a reflection of God's divine will. We spent, we'll spend time uh, momentarily looking deeper into God's moral law. But for, for the moment, it's enough to see that it's God's divine will distilled into ten words or ten commandments. And... and these Ten Commandments have historically bro been broken up into two tables. And this is defined for us in the London Baptist Confession, chapter 19, verse 2. It says that the same law that was first written in the hearts of man continued to be the perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. The first four containing our duty to God and the other six our duty to man. So these two tables, our duty to God, our duty to man, is the summary of the, the, the Ten Commandments. And, and God's moral law is seen as distinct from his ceremonial and judicial laws. The ceremonial law prefigures Christ. We see examples of it in the laws concerning priests, uh, sacrifices, and holiness laws, and other things. As Christians, we understand the ceremonial laws to have been fulfilled in Christ. Samuel Bolton had helpful words in understanding the ceremonial law. He said that the ceremonial law was an appendix to the first table of the moral law. It was an ordinance containing precepts of worship for the Jews when they were in their infancy. It was intended to keep them under hope, to preserve them from will worship, and to be a wall of separation between them and the Gentiles. 
This law, all agrees, is abrogated both in truth and in fact. So the ceremonial law, according to, to Bolton, is an appendix to the first table of the moral law. In other words, the ceremonial laws were a means for God's people to properly worship him before Christ. And in much the same way that the ceremonial law is, uh, helps us to understand the first table of the law, the judicial law uh, plays a similar function for the second table of the law. Again, Bolton says of the judicial law that the judicial law was an appendix to the second table. It was an ordinance containing precepts concerning the government of the people of things civil. It, it served three purposes. It gave the people a rule of common and public equity. It distinguished them from other peoples. And it gave them a type of government of Christ. That part of the judicial law, which was typical of Christ's government, has ceased. But that part, which is common and general equity, remains still in force. It's a common maxim. Those judgments which are common and natural are moral and perpetual. So again, the, the argument, uh, much like the ceremonial laws, the ceremonial and judicial law were given to God's people, a specific people at a specific time and for a specific purpose. And it was given to them that they might fulfill their duty to God and their duty to their fellow man prior to the coming of Christ. Now there's general agreement it's not completely ubiquitous, but there's a general agreement that the moral and ceremonial laws were a type and they've been abrogated by Christ. That Christ is the ultimate antitype, the fulfillment of those laws. And much can be said about that, especially when we look at the term general equity and what that actually means. But for today, I want to focus on God's moral law. The moral law is where really all the controversy is found within the church. So when I'm attempting to make a case for the ongoing validity of God's law, I'm speaking specifically of God's moral law. God's moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments. Now, you may or may not believe that there is clean distinctions between these categories, but I think it's undeniable that, these, uh, but that, that there are some distinctions made. We see that especially in the giving of the law. If we go back to our text in Deuteronomy, we see that God's moral law was treated differently than the judicial and ceremonial laws. Both the judicial and ceremonial laws are revealed to Moses by God, and then Moses took and, write, and wrote down what was revealed to him. The moral law was written by the hand of God himself. Moses is clear about that in Deuteronomy 9 verse 10. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God. These were not words dictated to Moses, but they were written by the very finger of God. There's a, a uniqueness about God's moral law. And, and I think that this text is conveying that uniqueness. And God not only wrote them down himself, but he wrote them on tablets of stone. And there's a, a permanence built into this idea that God did not write on parchment or, or paper that could change or be faded or fade away, but he wrote it on stone. It couldn't be changed and it would never fade away. This might be a kind of silly example, but I, when I was thinking about the permanence of God's law, I was thinking about the book Animal Farm. And uh, if you've read it, the, the animals take over the farm in the book and uh, the, one of the first things they do is they write seven commandments on the side of the barn. 
And what we see throughout the book is that these seven commandments just get slightly altered throughout the book as the, the pigs who kind of run the farm uh, are acting more like humans. The, the laws get altered to conform to their desires. So the, the original commandments say things like anyone who walks on two legs is an enemy. No animal shall wear clothes and all animals are equal. But by the end of the book, the, the pigs are walking on two legs and they're wearing clothes. And the, and the commandments have been distilled to, to one commandment, which states all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Now, I don't think that Orwell was arguing for the unique nature of God's moral law, but I think he does illustrate the point well. God's moral law is written by the finger of God himself on tablets of stone. They were given in such a way that they cannot be altered over time. They're unique and unchangeable. And it stands to reason on some level that if there's a uniqueness and permanence to God's moral law, then there's a sense in which they are perpetual. Now, if we were making a case for the perpetual obligation to God's law in Deuteronomy alone, the case would probably be a little bit on the thin side. If my only evidence was this unique transmission from the finger of God on tablets of stone, it would probably not be enough on its own. Although I think it would still be something that worth grappling over. But fortunately for us, there, there is a theme ongoing throughout scripture. And there are several scriptures that we can go to, but I want to focus on a few in particular. As Christians, I want to make sure that we uh, derive our theology from the Bible itself and not from uh, our tradition. And with that in mind, I want to turn our focus for a second to Matthew 5, verse 17 through 18. This is the Sermon on the Mount exposition. And it's a, it's a significant text when speaking about the law. So this is Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, starting in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps these, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, verse 17, when Jesus is speaking of the law and the prophets, I think he's using more of that broad use, which we talked about earlier. And the scope is not limited here to just the moral law. But I think he's speaking about the entire Old Testament, including the ceremonial and civil laws. And his focus is on, on the fulfillment. R.T. France put it this way. He said, it is Jesus's fulfillment of the Old Testament, which is in view here. The law remains valid until it reaches its intended culmination. This is now doing in the ministry of, te of the teaching of Jesus. The verse does not state, therefore, as it is sometimes interpreted, that every regulation in the Old Testament law remains binding after the coming of Jesus. The law is unalterable, but does not, it does not justify its application beyond the purpose for which it was intended. So verse 17 is arguing that the, the fulfillment of the teaching of the law and the prophets is found in Christ. And as, as we discussed before, the judicial and ceremonial laws 
find their intended fulfillment in Christ. So verse 17 in isolation can't be used to, to really argue for the perpetual obligation to God's moral law. But I wanted to draw our attention to verse 19 when he says, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, keep, whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, some have taken this phrase commandments and tried to argue that when G, what Jesus has in mind is his own teaching. But it's not a very convincing argument because everywhere else that the word commandment is used in Matthew, it refers to the Old Testament law. So most commentators agree that when Jesus, what Jesus has in mind when he says commandments is specifically the moral law. And, and the primary reason that this conclusion is drawn is because Jesus goes on to exegete parts of the Ten Commandments right after this. And so what Jesus is effectively doing is talking about the keeping of God's moral law. Now, if we had time to look, if we had time, we could look at a ton more verses um, and, and we could just spout them off, but that's not super helpful. So I wanted to look at just a couple in particular. Romans 3.31, it says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. And then later in Romans, in, in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And Samuel Bolton said this when commenting on these verses, he said, There the apostle repeats the commandment to the second table, not to repeal or reverse any of them, but to confirm them as a rule of walking for the saints. He comprehends them all in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, for love is the fulfillment of the law. As Beza writes, love is not perfected except as the fulfilling of the law. And this understanding makes, makes James chapter 2 verse 8 make more sense. When James says, if however you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So James is pointing out love as the fulfillment of the law. And as, as uh, Paul makes clear in, uh, in Romans, that ultimately loving thy neighbor as their self and loving God, right, are the two tables of the law fulfilled. It's, it's how we live out the Ten Commandments. So as that is kind of a baseline understanding of, of what God's law is, I want to transition our thoughts on how God's law functions in the life of man. We started by looking at the, the giving of the law, and it, it's helpful to understand the, the uniqueness and the permanency of the law. But when we're looking at how, how man relates to God's law, we have to actually look a little further back than that. If you were speaking to someone and trying to make a case for God's moral law as the standard of righteousness and saying that it always has been, the first thing that you might get asked is, what about the people who lived before the giving of the law at Sinai? And really, in order to answer that question, 
we have to realize that God's moral law is, is codified in the Ten Commandments, but there's a real sense in which God's moral law has naturally existed in the hearts of men prior to the giving of the law at Sinai. Now, that's not to say that man is born with a perfect understanding of the law, especially in, in, in light of original sin. But it is to say there's a, there is a unique way in which starting from Adam and, and to this day, God has enabled us with a, a natural means for knowing right from wrong. This is sometimes referred to as, as natural law. And its full reality is described by Paul in Romans 1 verses 18 through 19 when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And then later in Romans chapter 2 verse 14 and part of 15 he says, For the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law are a law to themselves if that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. So the, the, the point, as Ernie Reisinger says, is that the law of nature or of creation continues to be impressed upon the human mind by God apart from any tradition or instruction. There is no mortal that does not feel its force to some degree. <coughs> Excuse me. So God's, ma, God's law was, was truly lit, written on the hearts of all men before the giving of the law at Sinai, before they were written on tablets of stone by the finger of God. But rather what happened at Sinai is that God articulated or he codified what we already intrinsically knew to be true. John Lightfoot said that Adam heard as much in the garden as Israel did at Sinai, but only in fewer words and without thunder. So man has a, enough knowledge of God to stand before him guilty for not obeying. Because what he know, what God's law has been made evident to him. And, and many have chosen to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. And, and what is the suppression of truth? What do we call the transgression of God's law? Well, it's sin. Because man's relationship to the law is naturally known and yet he chooses to sin against God's law. And the mere fact that we are sinners is evidence for our continued obligation to God's law. Paul says in Romans 5.13, sin is not imputed where there is no law. So if indeed sin is not imputed where there is no law, then if the law does not exist before Sinai, sin could not have existed before Sinai. And we know this isn't the case. And in fact, we're told in 2 Peter 2.5 that God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. So what is the standard for sin and the standard for righteousness if it's not the law of God? And that hasn't changed for us today. For Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That includes you and me and every man that walks the face of this earth. The, the standard for righteousness at the time of Noah is the standard of, for righteousness for us today. It's God's moral law. John makes that clear in 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. 
So I, I hope you're following my logic here because it, it's critical for grasping the importance of the law. All mankind is under the curse of sin and sin is lawlessness. The, the Baptist catechism actually sums this up nicely in question number 15. It asks the question, what is sin? And the answer is that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So if Christians are called not to sin, which they are repeatedly, we see it in 2 Timothy 2.19, for instance, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So if Christians are called to, to not sin, then they are called to obey God's law. So that's how the law functions in the life of man in general. But the last thing I want to look at is how the law functions in the life of a believer. So, and this is like a, not a, a super profound thought, but I think it's really important and it's really rather simple. As Christians, we're to delight in the law of God. Uh, Ernest Keevan said that the only heart, only the heart that can say, I delight to do thy will, O my God, can be a judge to be truly converted. And Thomas Watson said that hypocrites may obey God's law, but the saints love his law. Now, before I go any further in this thought stream, there's, there's one critical distinction that, that needs to be made. And perhaps I should have made it at the, at the very beginning. It, and it has to do with the question of justification versus sanctification. While it's true that God's law is binding on us to this day, it's critical that we understand that obedience to the law is not the means by which we're saved. We're not justified before God by obedience. In fact, the opposite is really true. We're, we're condemned by the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, For the sting of death is sin, <clears throat> and the power of sin is the law. So much like Paul says in Romans 5, 13, that sin is not imputed where there is no law. Here he says that the power of sin is the law. The law cannot save us, and the law has not saved us. If we look at what Paul says right after verse 56 and 57, he says, But thanks be to God that gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are saved through Christ apart from works of the law. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, as Scott talked about in Sunday school, let, let not wise men boast of their wisdom, not, let not strong men boast of their strength, let not rich men boast of their riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that they know God. By Christ alone we're justified, and that's our only hope. And, th and this really is the great danger of our world. If you've done any kind of evangelism, if you've talked to people about about Christ, the common refrain is, well, I try to be a good person. As if being a good person is a means for which they'll reach heaven. But, but the, the reality is that in us and in our flesh dwells no good thing. There's no hope for us in being a good person. There's no hope for us in doing good works. And, and that's why... Understanding the difference between the law and the gospel is so important. 
If we think back to uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 10, and this, this same similar event happens in the other synoptics, but it's a little bit unique in Luke, in Luke chapter 10. When a lawyer questions Jesus in verse 25, he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by asking him, what does the law say? And the lawyer, he must have been a follower of Jesus or he must have been listening to Jesus or acquainted with his teaching because he goes on, <clears throat> excuse me, to combine two Old Testament teachings, namely Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. The same way that Jesus does, in today's terms, we call it the great commandment. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And, the, and these two ideas are, are ultimately the summary of the Ten Commandments. It's the affirmation of the first table and the second table of the law. Our duty to God and our duty to our fellow man. And Jesus affirms this answer by saying, you've answered correctly. But then he challenges him with the obligation of the law. An obligation that we see repeated over and over in the Old Testament. Jesus says, do this and you will live. And, and this is the only hope outside of Christ. Perfect obedience to the law of God. Do this and live. And, and we, we know that without Christ, there is, no hope, there is no hope because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can keep the law perfectly, but Christ has kept the law perfectly on our behalf. Therefore, instead of do this and you will live, the call to a Christian is you live, therefore do this. So in terms of sanctification, <clears throat> in terms of sanctification, the law becomes the standard by which Christians are called to live. Romans 7.22, Paul says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The law is not a covenant that condemns us for we're saved by Christ. The law is a standard. It's the way in which God shows us to walk. Now, Lord willing, we'll, we'll look at uh, the implications of the law on, on the life of the believer in more depth next week. But for today, I want to leave us with this last thought as we contemplate the law of God. So first and foremost, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you stand condemned by the requirements of the law. You're told, do this and you shall live. You are required to keep the law perfectly. And just like the rest of us, you failed miserably. God's law is written on your heart. And yet you have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. You have one hope. And that's to turn to Christ and be saved. That you might declare, I live, therefore I delight to obey God's law. And for those of us who are in Christ, we rejoice that we are not condemned by the law. For Christ obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. And God's law has no power to condemn us whatsoever. But instead we rejoice in the law of God. Because to obey is not a burden, but a gift. That's not to say that we keep the law perfectly. 
for we are sinners, but rather we understand that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law we meditate day and night. And we can say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Let's pray. Father God, we delight in your law. We long to meditate on it. Day and night we rejoice that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I ask that we would leave this place refreshed with a renewed sense of awe as we wonder at your marvelous grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.